now that we're part of Logic Monitor, um, it's even more interesting to me because we have uh, the ability to, to leverage a whole bunch of stuff that they have um, that I see as a way to bring developers that visibility that they really, really want. Hi there, welcome to JavaScript Jam. I am Ishan Nand, CTO at MoveWeb. And I'm Mark Percato, VP of Engineering at MoveWeb. Uh, in today's episode, we are joined by Eric Anderson, who is the CTO at Airbrake, uh, which is a tool that I'm sure many of our listeners are already familiar with. Uh, Eric's gonna be spending some time with us today, answering questions about Airbrake and their view of the industry. Eric, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, can you first off tell our audience who isn't familiar with Airbrake just a little bit about uh, what Airbrake does uh, succinctly? Sure. Uh, yeah, essentially, um, we basically help developers, you know, find and diagnose issues, bugs, crashes, exceptions, or whatever, uh, in their production code or staging code um, across their application stack. So. You, know, you deploy some code, you deploy an app, or whatever you've been working on, you get to see what broke when pretty quickly down to the code level and able to fix it really, really fast. That's the short three answer or three sentence answer. So find your errors fast and get them resolved uh, quickly. Yep. The yep. key value. Uh, which for those of us who, who don't write perfect code from the get-go is, is a huge boon. Um, you know, the interesting thing is you know, we set up this call uh, a few weeks ago, and then in between when we're recording this and when we set it up, you guys just got acquired. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? We did. Yeah, it was a surprise. I woke up one morning and no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, we did. We got acquired by Logic Monitor. Uh, Logic Monitor is uh, it's a monitoring company, as you might imagine. Uh, typically, you know, uh, for IT and ops, you know, infrastructure monitoring and stuff like that. Uh, so they acquired us. Um, to bring that sort of visibility from the dev perspective uh, into their, you know, unified unified observability vision. Uh, so yeah, that was very recent, just the last couple of weeks. Congrats! Yeah, thanks. Very cool. Appreciate that. So I have some questions about the market for error tracking. Like I vaguely remember hearing about this kind of a service maybe like five years ago ish. Like first thing is just like how how long have things like Airbrake in error tracking as a service existed? Actually, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, a long time, uh, about 10 years. Um, mm -hmm. To be honest, uh, Airbrake essentially created the space. They, they basically invented the space way back uh, as Hoptoad. Uh, so it, it started off with a focus on Ruby on Rails when a lot of, uh, lot of you know, web apps you know, were built on uh, Ruby on Rails. Uh, they were throwing exceptions and stuff and the idea was like, yeah, I would like to be able to see those before my customers do. Uh, so, a couple of, you know, a couple of guys in the garage kind of thing, right? <clears throat> uh, built out Hoptoad, uh, and uh, and from there, it, it was heavily focused on Ruby on Rails, and now of course it covers like every language. Uh, but from there, uh, it basically grew, and now there's many companies that that do the same thing or similar uh, in some different types of ways, right? Uh, you know, you've heard, I'm sure you've heard of different different companies that all do this, but uh, yeah, so it really started there. Um, and yeah, you probably bumped up to you know, Airbrake or, or even Hoptoad or Exceptional. It was named Exceptional for a while. 
um, yeah, this has been around for quite some time, 10 years or so. Yeah. Well, you know, our team uses it across many products and, and has phrases super happy with it. Like, yeah, would you describe that the market for error tracking is like mature? Does everybody know they need this or is this still a thing where you're convincing people they need to be able to track errors? Yeah, I would say it is a mature market, uh, but uh, interestingly enough, um, you don't have to convince somebody uh, to track the errors once they know to track the errors. <laughs> uh, so that's that's an interesting part of the market is, uh, you know, developers, you know, everybody assumes that, you know, their code's good, they tested it, it's perfect, now there's no bugs, and you ship it, uh, and then later on you find out there is indeed at least one bug, right, that one last bug remaining. Uh, and it, typically in that process, when you're looking for, you know, what's this bug, or trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, monitor it or, or see if there's bugs in the future, that's when you'll stumble into uh, an air break and find out that there's actually a service that can help give you visibility into that. And then from there, it's kind of self, you know, a self-selling service if you want. Mm -hmm. Got it. The space for monitoring, you know, overlaps with, you know, ops and it's traditionally been ops. Is this, you know, adopted equally by ops teams and developers? What's what's kind of that breakdown like? Yeah, that, that, that's also a good question. Um, so typically exception monitoring uh, and the like, uh, like break is typically adopted by the developers. Um, they're the ones that usually wanna know when there's a crash or a bug or something like that. Uh, and ops teams typically are focused on managing resources um, and devs consume resources. So it is a little bit different. Ops teams don't often uh, look for exception or error monitoring. Um, so it's typically the developer, uh, but as we see, you know, as we're, we've all seen, right? Um, as we go into the future, devs are devs are kings, um, and you know they're building stuff and they're deploying, and they end up owning the responsibility uh, of managing those services and applications uh, for the business, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, because it's a business level um, requirement, um, more and more shift has gone towards the developer. So, uh, so these tools are sort of becoming more and more important to developers and dev. DevOps um, versus ops, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And it, it kind of mirrors what we're seeing as well, which is, you know, a lot of trends, including Jamstack, being about developer empowerment and doing more with less ops or DevOps. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that not only makes sense, it resonates very closely for us. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, switching tacks a little bit, you know, looking at your background, you know, you're an entrepreneur yourself. You've had multiple exits, uh, including to Oracle. Um, you know, tell us about yourself, your experience, and and your history. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, interestingly enough, um, way back, uh, I was actually a, a sysadmin, so I'm, I'm an old ops guy. Uh, so I have my ops hat that I put on once in a while. Um, so I do think of things uh, operationally, uh, you know, about resource management, things like that. I, I do have that perspective for sure. Uh, and then uh, I left. I left doing ops. I kind of got well. To be honest, you know, uh, I did it for many years, and uh, for every year in ops is more like five years off your life or something. I think. <laughs> it's my dog. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's a, that's a good analogy. Um, so then I, I I went to a startup uh, in Austin, Texas, and uh, I joined not really knowing what to do, you know what the heck it was all about, but um, I dove in. Um, and I started doing some software and some engineering and lots of different stuff. And uh, it, it actually 
failed uh, fairly miserably. Uh, this was not my startup, uh, but it was somebody else's. And uh, I learned a whole lot about what not to do at a company, uh, which I think is actually almost more valuable than what to do. Um, so I learned a whole bunch of stuff. And, uh, and then when that, that company cratered, uh, myself and uh, one other guy from that company started Copper Egg, uh, which was, uh, oddly enough, it was a, a monitoring company, uh, focused on ops and monitoring and cloud monitoring specifically. Um, and then I, I hired my first employee, Robert, uh, which has been with me ever since, actually. Um, so we did that. We did some APM. Uh, we did, you know, end user monitoring, a lot of those things that are still popular now, uh, and sold that to a company called Idera. Uh, and they've uh, moved on and done a bunch of stuff, but Copper Egg is still actually around today. Uh, and then after that, I started a company called Stack Engine, uh, again with me, myself and uh, another couple people from Copper Egg, uh, including Robert. And, uh, and it was basically a uh, it was a, a platform for uh, managing applications that were containerized, right? Container-based, uh, Dockerized. Uh, this was pre-Kubernetes, uh, so nothing really existed to do that type of thing. Uh, we saw that, you know, as people were going to containerize their applications and move towards microservices and such, that they were going to have a problem. And that's like, well, we used to have ten instances in the cloud. Uh, now you're going to have 10 containers on 10 instances and now you got to manage those. So that seems like a problem. So uh, we wanted to build some software to help people do that. Uh, and it turns out uh, after about a year and a half, uh, we got bought by Oracle because they thought that was a good idea as well. Uh, and from there, uh, that team that built Stack Engine went, uh, we actually built, um, uh, at, the, at this same time, by the way, Kubernetes was bubbling up becoming popular and it became clear to us that like that was actually the right way to go that was the path to go down uh, and so the team that built stack engine along with others um, uh, went off and built oracle's kubernetes engine uh, which is what was still running today like if you go into oracle cloud uh, and you sign up and use their their managed kubernetes service that that's the service um, so we went off and built that and then uh, after that uh, went and joined airbreak uh, about a little over a year ago uh, as CTO and uh, trying to help them, you know, build that company up and scale that business and uh, move it to the next level. Sounds like you were really ahead of the market, you know, especially on what became, you know, containerization and Kubernetes. I'm curious, you know, given that history, your view on like the adoption of Kubernetes versus serverless, because you know, more recently, they've been kind of pitted against each other in terms of technologies. What's your viewpoint on that? Yeah, I, I, people trying to pit them against each other, I, I, I think they're sort of uh, complementary. Um, mm -hmm. You have to imagine that most serverless is actually built on top of Kubernetes or something like it. Yep. Um, that's almost all they're all run. Um, when you run a, a serverless um, app or whatever, uh, it it's probably running in a container anyway, uh, whether you put it in there or it gets put in there, it's probably how it's running. Uh, so uh, I see I see this as like part of a stack. Um, Kubernetes is really for things that are gonna be running longer term. Yes, you can run things like a serverless. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, we can go through all the nuances there, but um, but I see them as complementary uh, very much so. Serverless um, is great for um, one-off things or ad hoc or even things where you might have a developer who doesn't, need to know all the depth of a Kubernetes um, or, you know, 
the, the whole platform, uh, which can be quite complex now. Um, so, so I see them as very complementary, not really competitive, uh, but I do see serverless as a uh, huge part of the future going forward, for sure, especially for front-end devs that need to get some sort of back-end stuff done uh, that don't need to have a long-running container, et cetera, uh, or, or learn about all that even. That makes sense. Um, I mean, we've, we've implemented both here uh, ourselves, uh, yep. both Kubernetes and uh, uh, serverless for various parts of our infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, I find that very common. So, so you know, given your background and history, what specifically drew you to Airbrake, and, and what are some of the things that excite you about maybe the next year or two years there? Uh, yeah, honestly, um, when I came across Airbrake, um, it was really about the fact that it, it had a lot of similarities to Copreg, uh, not only the team, uh, but the market and who, you know, how they were trying to bring visibility and stuff. Now, it was a little different that it was primarily driven for developers and at Copperhead we were uh, focused on uh, on ops, uh, but there was some similarities there and some overlap, which I really liked. Uh, and, and I I thought that I could, you know, bring some of my experience and uh, technical expertise and such to Airbrake to help them, you know, really, you know, amp it up. Um, and so I thought that would be pretty fun and exciting to do. Um, as far as like over the next year or two, um, now that we're part of Logic Monitor, um, it's even more interesting to me because we have uh, the ability to, to leverage a whole bunch of stuff that they have um, that I see as a way to bring developers that visibility that they really, really want um, that you know operations folks typically have had uh, a lot of access to, but now we can bring some of that to developers in a way that developers actually wanna see it. Um, for instance, you know, most developers are, they don't care how much memory is remaining on the machine as long as they've got some, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just, just give me the resources, let me use them, right? Uh, but it, it is important to know if you ran out or if there was some sort of problem or there's some other issue that's impacting the performance of your app or causing errors that you have to debug because nobody wants to go down a path causing things and then realize, well, there's actually no bug at all in the code. It, it's fine. It's actually this other external platform mm. issue. Mm. So, uh, so I'm excited to continue that vision and that future, and and bring that context, you know, up to the developer, where, you know, where they really need it. Very cool. So, you know, defining that roadmap is a good seg into a question that I, I'm I get asked a lot, which is, you know, the the question is like, as a CTO. It's a title that has a lot of different incarnations in terms of what it means. Um, yeah. And when I answer it, I often refer to, you know, Vogels has a, has a famous uh, blog post on the different types of CTO. Um, but when you get asked, you know, what type of CTO are you or what does CTO mean, you know, for you at Airbrake, how do you answer that question? Yeah, that, that's a good one. Uh, that's a good, that's a stumper question. But um, I, think, I think my answer to that is, uh, Basically, I'm, uh, I'm the visionary um, and somewhat of a big thinker. Um, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not more on the, you know, I don't know, operational side so much, even though I, I understand that part. Uh, my, my sweet spot is really thinking of the vision. Um, uh, I'd, I'd like to think of it as like 
seeing a bit into the future and around the corners and then mm -hmm. taking that vision and leveraging the uh, the technology that's available and will be available to help drive the business forward. So um, sort of, I'd say sort of a mix of those two categories from, you know, from that blog, if you wish. Got it. How about you? <laughs> uh, so mine is, so my answer actually to that question is, is twofold. Um, I think all those duties that Vogels lays out need to still be executed on. Um, yep. And what makes that possible for me is that um, it's really the team. So in particular, Mark does a lot of the, you know, team management in, you know, he's VP of engineering. Um, and that allows me to be more customer facing and prospect facing. Um, and, and actually the product roadmap is really shared three ways uh, between myself, Mark and our CEO who himself is very technical. Um, and so my role is, is really, I would say vision, bridge between multiple entities within the organization and then prospect and customer facing. Um, and that's only possible because there's other people filling those other roles that he outlined. That's, that's the short absolutely. answer for when I get asked it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. It definitely is. It is almost a team effort in a, in a, in a lot of ways, right? Um, and once you find your sweet spot um, where you can excel at, then having a great team around you that can help with those other pieces, that's what really makes it all fit together. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you can't scale without, without a, a good team. Uh, and when you're managing product, you know, um, Heaton Shaw is somebody I, I listen to a bunch and he says, you know, when you're a product manager, wherever the product is failing, it could be, it could actually be part of marketing. It could be a part of sales. It could, that's your chief product problem. So you never know where those problems are going to arise. And so you need to be able to just be a bridge across multiple areas. So having a team that you can rely on for the, you know, the other parts is really, really critical. Yeah, absolutely agree. So given that this is a like, reasonably mature space at this point, like, what is it that differentiates one player in the space from another? What like specifically differentiates Airbrake from its competitors? That's a question that's uh, asked quite a bit, actually. Um, I think the answer there is um, for Airbrake specifically, uh, it's breadth, breadth of coverage and depth in the areas that developer really cares about. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, not only do we cover almost every language you could possibly think of, uh, we cover it equally well and uh, we bring a certain depth to the you know, root cause analysis, if you will. So if there's an issue or an error or problem, uh, we don't just tell you about it, we actually consolidate it and aggregate it in a way that you care about and bring you all the way down into the code level, you know, who committed it and when, what broke, you know, as well as who resolved all those issues, right? Like, hey, a bunch of errors just disappeared, you know, you know good old Steve, committed something on Saturday and deployed it and look at that, they magically went away and you can see the code diff that actually fixed it. Uh, so that that depth uh, across that whole range of languages is I think what separates Airbrake apart. Uh, in general, in the industry, I would say that what you'll find is the different uh, competitors out there typically focus on one language as their core. They'll cover a lot, they'll, you know, they'll show all the languages on their website, of course, but you'll typically find that they're really good at one language or one area. Um, and, and that's sort of their area of ownership, if, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, 
Oh, go ahead, Mark. This challenge really resonates with me and our team because on our platform, we support a number of different frameworks and just the breadth of technologies that we have to be conversant in on a daily basis as a small team is, is really, it's challenging and it's exciting. I think probably a lot of developers would, would like to be given the freedom to dabble in 10 or 15 things on a daily basis. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, when, when you actually have to be knowledgeable and you're not just playing around, that, that can be also kind of stressful as well. Like, is that a difficult thing for your team to, you know, to support, you know, 10, 20, you know, 30 different languages and have to know them? Yeah. All? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it is difficult. You know, I think all teams go through this, right? They all have sort of this, this issue, at least at, at some point in their maturity level um, as a team, right? Or a product or service. So it, it's definitely difficult, um, you know, for us, you know, first of all, most of our uh, integrations and stuff are, are fairly mature now, but uh, we'll typically have a, a person on the team who's sort of strong uh, on a language or strong in, in a nearby language. And then we try to have some, I'll say, folks that are maybe weaker in the language, um, I'll say nearby. Uh, so you have an expert and then some not so experts that are sort of orbiting or helping uh, assist that or learning as well. Um, you, you get a lot of benefit from that. Um, you know, it, it alleviates some of the pressure from the senior person or the more knowledgeable person and allows the um, more junior to learn. Uh, we also definitely try to encourage uh, exploring uh, and diving deep into some of these languages that they don't know. Uh, we do things like Fix It Friday, um, like uh, there's stuff broken, mm -hmm. we threw, you know, threw over the bus, whatever, um, you know, go fix these things. And some, a lot of times we'll, you know, encourage somebody from the team who's not familiar in that area to go and pick up that work and buffer plenty of time for them to go and basically, you know, learn how to do it as they go. So yeah, it might take the senior person two days to go do that thing. And the junior person might take a week. That's okay. We buffer for that because that's super valuable for them later on in their, you know, you're investing in the person career. on the team. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yep. Yep. How big is and, the team and, and how many languages just to give folks a sense of scope and scale? Uh, we're about 10 people uh, mm -hmm. and we, we have about 30 languages supported. So, wow. Yeah, it, it can be daunting. Uh, we just recently went through a, uh, a series of updates on all the different languages. We're almost done with them. Um, and we've had certain people pick up, you know, certain languages and stuff. And we actually just went through this recently where uh, there was one language that we had to support and nobody had any idea. Uh, nobody could remember. And uh, the one person who actually wrote it originally, who was like the senior person had left some time back. And so it was kind of uh, like, oh, well, nobody really knows this. Uh, and uh, <laughs> one of our developers was like, well, I take it a I'll take a shot, you know. I'll give it a shot, right? I might need some help. It might take me a long time. Uh, and we're like, that's cool. Go for it, right? Learn, get help. It takes you time. That's okay. We understand that. Now you're learning about it, right? It builds a person. And, uh, you know, I'm a strong believer of, uh, you know, cross-pollinating stuff. I think that, I think just builds better, better developers for sure and better people. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that anybody who's been on a team for a while can resonate with where, the in-house subject matter expert, you know, may no longer be there for some key component and then they're gone. And now what else can you do? Somebody has to just pick up the reins and try and figure it out. 
Uh, do you yeah. prioritize by language popularity or usage within the within platform? How do you sort those that kind of prioritization out? Yeah, we do. Um, we typically, um, we I guess we do the obvious thing, right? We 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 typically pick up the things that are the most used, most consumed, and most dependent on uh, frameworks and languages. Um, so for us, it's you know Ruby, um, you know, Ruby and Rails, Go, uh, Python. Uh, .NET, Node, you know, JavaScript, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. Uh, those, those are the, the primary languages right now. So we'll, 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 we'll pick those up first. And that's actually where our, a lot of our core expertise lies anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can, we can typically go through those pretty quickly. Uh, but yeah, we definitely prioritize those first. So as a developer, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking like, if I had to build this thing, what would be my concerns to, to build like an error tracking, you know, utility as a service? And one of them would definitely be like cost. I imagine if you've ever just watched a browser console on the average site, the amount of errors just <laughs> scrolling down that are all getting reported to a service like this must be massive. You, you guys must get a, a massive amount of data coming to you every day. We do. The cost <laughs> low and, and, and just not, you know, get eaten up by your providers that are providing the storage and the bandwidth for this stuff. Yeah, uh, we do have a lot of uh, data ingest. Um, uh, that's uh, it's a primary driver of our costs. Uh, you know, we we put a lot of time and effort into uh, thinking through the architecture and the design uh, by using queues and segmenting things, and you know, you know, thinking about blast radius, like if when this thing goes down, what does that look like, etc. Um, you know. You know, in the end, it's it's all about trying to uh, optimize each step um, in the way that you think uh, applies broadly, and then ignoring the edge cases, um, if that makes sense. We have some customers that are, well, fairly large. Um, uh, ones you know, um, I, I can tell you, Ring is is a is a customer of ours, and they're they're fairly large. You've probably heard of them, you know, the doorbell company. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, they tend to throw a lot of errors, especially like on Halloween, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and so, you know, there, there are times when you can't optimize for the edge case, but you optimize for the common case, right? Uh, so we do a lot of batching, a lot of aggregation, uh, and we try to do it at the right step uh, throughout the architectural design. Uh, so we're not duplicating effort, et cetera. Uh, but yes, absolutely. It's a concern for sure all the time. Yeah, and like, have do you feel like you've put a lot of work into optimizing for costs? Like, uh, that tends to happen. You know, the more well established a product gets, yeah. Where are you in that kind of cycle? Yeah, uh, we're, we're definitely um, in the in the mature end of that cycle. Um, you're you're dead on that. You know, when you first start building something, especially like in your startup, you're very small. Um, you're all about solving the problem, finding product market fit. And, um, you know, that that's your main goal. Cost isn't really the issue because you know that you could throw everything away uh, as you search for product market fit. Mm -hmm. Once you've found product market fit and you start getting some adoption, that's the right time to start thinking about how you scale this thing out uh, over the long term. Um, you don't want to do it at the end uh, because that's too late to throw it all away and start over. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, a lot of people do wait till the very end, uh, but but yeah, we're we're well on our way into that maturity path for sure. Um, there are definitely new technologies that I would love to take advantage of uh, to you know reduce costs, make things a little bit snappier, and 
uh, scalable, but, um, but yeah, we're definitely into the maturity curve there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're almost uh, at time. I just want to close by asking you what can, you know, users of Airbrake look forward to in, in the future that you can talk about that you're, you're looking forward to and excited about? I touched on it a little bit, uh, but I would say um, look forward to seeing uh, more context around the exceptions and errors and things that, that you see normally, more context around that as far as how those might be happening uh, from the other parts of your platform, as well as uh, other services that might be impacting your service. Uh, so things that you consume that might break your service, um, things like that. Hmm, that sounds very interesting. Uh, and if people want to check out Airbrake, obviously they go to airbrake.io. If people want to, you know, learn more about you or follow you, like, are you active on social media? Do you have a blog? What's the best way to, to follow your activity? That's a good question. I'm not super active on social media. Uh, I use Twitter, so you can uh, you can find me there. Um, I'm at Destari, D-E-S-T-A-R-I. Uh, you can find me there. Okay, great. Well, Eric, thank you again for, for joining us on JavaScript Jam. All right, thanks. Appreciate the time. That was great.